This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Festival. A lot of people who were around at the time wrote about this phenomenon in their memoirs. At the turn of the century, there were articles in historical society journals. People were fascinated by who these women married. They became part of the the whole origin story of the Puget Sound region. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're talking about the so-called Mercer Girls, or a group of women brought to pioneer Seattle in a strange scheme to offer, quote, marriageable brides to the white settlers. But this whole story also lives in a much broader context of patriarchy, racism, and exploitation in the region, which only started to take a turn decades later. So that is the topic of the video, which you really should watch. If you haven't already seen it, we suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. What kind of men are you? Where are you taking us? Where is Seattle anyway? Washington Territory. In the 1960s, there was a TV show called Here Come the Brides about a bunch of plucky gals in calico dresses who came out to civilize the loggers of a fictional version of Pioneer Seattle. I guess I just wanted to start this conversation too, just sort of from the very ignorant place that I come from, which is, um, you know, I had not heard about the Mercer Girls. Do most people know the story of the Mercer Girls? And if so, or, or if the people, if some people know this story, are familiar on some level with this story, where do they know it from? Is it that 1968 show or is it another kind of local cultural narrative that people know about? Yeah, I think there's a difference between, you know, if you grew up here as a kid and learned local history when you were in the fifth grade or whatever, there's, you probably have some idea of what, who the Mercer girls were. Mm -hmm. If you're from out of the area and you say, here come the brides or the story that the here come the brides TV show was based on a lot more people know. Oh, yeah. A whole bunch of white women came out to Seattle. They married the loggers. Wasn't that a musical? Wasn't that, a, you know, uh-huh. the, people have this. I mean, the TV show Bobby Sherman was a star. David Soul. I mean, there, there are other cultural icons that kind of came out that gave this whole thing this kind of bright chipper story. Mm-hmm. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers had a similar theme. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned about the basics when I was in grade school. And then I went to Asa Mercer Junior High. Oh. So I went to, it's now middle school on Beacon Hill, but I went there, when I went there, it was a junior high school. And it was it was only opened in the late 1950s. You know, 100 years after the Mercer Girl experience, somebody thought it was a good idea to name a Seattle school after the guy who, who uh, instigated this adventure of... Human trafficking, basically, yeah, yeah, um, uh, or whether mail order brides on kind of a large scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think people know they 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 think of it as kind of a, a bright, happy story with this kind of little titillating element of these women coming out to marry guys that they didn't know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and becoming part of the frontier life. That's that's pretty much what people know, uh, as you can imagine. 
there's a lot more to <laughs> yep. to the story about <laughs> well why did they bring white women out and mm -hmm. what problem were they trying to solve and in the mercer girls as a phrase i mean do you know where that comes from uh, why girls i think it's just you know an old sort of yeah sexist term they they weren't girls mm -hmm. they were women most of them were uh, you know, in their 20s, 30s, even 40s. Mm. And we can go back and talk about why the women were brought out. Mm -hmm. But the process of, of w once you make the decision that you're going to do this and then you go back east to try and recruit women to come out, Seattle at that time was nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about uh, this is occurring in 1864, 1865, Civil War is going on, um, mm -hmm. and this young man, Asa Mercer, had uh, you know was living here in Seattle, and he he, the idea was sort of hatched by a number of people, and he was designated to be the one that would go back and recruit the women. So it's the middle of the Civil War, and he goes to Massachusetts, where there are a lot of mills, cotton, woolen mills, cotton mills, and. Uh, there are a lot of single women who are working in the war effort, and mm -hmm. many of them are single because they're widows. Mm -hmm. And his idea is, wow, I can recruit a whole bunch of single women, spinsters, uh, unmarrieds who are working in these mills. I can recruit w what they call war orphans, which, mm. you know, was the, the daughters or wives of men who've been killed in the war and uh, entice them to come out to Seattle. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird kind of predatory element to it because these are women that on the East Coast, their their sort of options to be part of society have been set back. You yeah. know, are they marriageable? Maybe not anymore there, but out in the frontier, suddenly they're quite desirable. Mm -hmm. And so there was a very conscious effort to kind of emphasize war widows and orphans to to create this large group of women who are going to come out to Seattle, which is a place that some of them, maybe they heard of, but it was a, a small frontier town with whorehouses and sawmills and uh, not a very appealing place. It actually had a reputation at the time already as a kind of sinful place, like many frontier towns, but Seattle definitely had that reputation. It was fairly novel, so there was a lot of publicity about it. Many people thought it was a great idea. And men in Seattle, some men had paid Asa Mercer money to bring them back a wife. Mm -hmm. So it had that kind of mail order bride element, which is I'm giving you $300, my life savings. <laughs> You're going to bring me back, a, you know, someone to do all the chores <laughs> right. of a frontier <laughs> existence. They were recruited you know, with the idea that they could become school teachers or they could be seamstresses. There was there was a conscious effort to kind of phrase it in such a way that people would know that these were good, honest Christian women mm. uh, and, and that they weren't being recruited here for any nefarious purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a second expedition which happened right uh, right around the time Lincoln was assassinated, the end of end of the war um, was the more successful. He had hoped to bring hundreds of women, but it really ended up being over the course of the two expeditions, you know, it was really more like 40, 
40 or 50 at the most. Yeah, so that's not that that many, actually. No, and many some of them weren't marriageable, actually. I mean, in terms of people who actually paid a fare, because they had to pay their own way, although oh, really? he, that was inconsistent. He loaned some women the money to come out, and uh, some got a free ride, some had to pay full freight. Huh. So um, he was not very good at dealing consistently with money. It got him into a lot of trouble. You know, and, and many of the men who paid money didn't get what they paid for. Right. You know, he couldn't he he couldn't really explicitly promise a particular woman to a particular man. There, there was some degree of free choice there. Mm-hmm. He brought out, in some cases, uh, families, some who were already married, you know, and oh. <clears throat> were coming out to just uh, start a new life of some kind or whatever. So that's all by way of saying that, you know, of that group that he brought out, not all were so-called marriageable. That was the big term. These are marriageable women. Mm-hmm. And race had a big factor to do with it, the fact that these were white women. Mm-hmm. And that had a particular value. This event itself, which is sort of strange and problematic, but it's sort of like, where does this mail-order bride type of scheme originate? It really originates in this bigger context, which you talked about in the video. Where yeah, I mean... Basically, the settling of the frontier was largely a male enterprise. Yeah, yeah. And often married or single, men would often be the first ones to come out. They might bring their family later once they got a homestead going. Or they, you know, were unattached and working. They were prospectors. They were loggers. They were seamen. They were, you know, all different kinds of things. And you had these huge disparity ratio of white men to white women and the number of white women, you know, it was maybe 10 to 1. It was, I mean, these large disparity. So what did what did these settlers do for sex? What did they do to have somebody as, uh, as their partner in setting up a home or uh, helping them? Well, there were several solutions that people pursued. One was so-called country marriages. Which were, which were marriages between white men and indigenous women. Hmm. And the Hudson Bay Company, which was sort of the real, you know, the first big kind of settling force in the, in, in the Northwest in terms of, you know, the trading posts and farms and schools and all that kind of thing. They had a more sort of laissez-faire attitude when it came to race. Mm. Um, the Hudson Bay Company originating in Canada. They had lots of multiracial uh, employees and families, and many of them had intermarried with Native women. You know, if a trapper uh, wanted to uh, marry an indigenous woman, um, it was it was not encouraged particularly, but it wasn't looked down upon mm-hmm. entirely. And it was actually seen maybe as good for business because this established these helped helped smooth trade relationships between local tribes and the fur traders. Americans, as they moved into the Oregon country, and of course they're moving in where there's a racial exclusion law, right? So, you know, Oregon had us passed a series of laws to try and prevent people of color from living in Oregon. Huh. So they're they're coming out with. Uh, but the, the the most effective thing in terms of segregation was the homestead laws, which mm. said 
um, you know, you can come out and you get a certain number of acres of land that you, you can homestead. But it only applied to white men. Huh. And if you were married to a white woman, you could double the amount you could get. Oh, my gosh. So a lot of the incentive was to get marriageable white women so you could increase the amount of property. But also there was a, a tremendous amount of you know, racism about the mingling of whites and Native Americans. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how big a factor that was with the Mercer girls until I started reading the pioneer papers talking about the evils of intermarriage between whites and Native women. Mm. You know, and, and so the arguments were made by newspaper editorialists of, you know, we've got to bring white women to the territory because we, we can't have this race mixing. It's, not, it's going to degrade both races. The results <laughs> of this interaction is terrible. I mean, it's um, very blatant and unapologetic. It's just stated as this is sort of a fact of nature. Mm-hmm. And this is this is writing in early early Seattle papers, early yeah, uh, Puget Sound, mm-hmm. Puget Sound newspapers, the Puget Sound Dispatch, and others. It's being discussed at the legislature in Olympia. Intermarriage is banned in the Washington Territory. Interracial marriage is banned. Huh. You know, there's an explicit desire uh, for white women, and then there's a second part of this, which is frontier men, white men, marrying young girls. Mm-hmm. And I put marrying in quotes. But, you know, there there were laws that said you know, the age of consent was at 16 or 18, whatever. But, you know, you, there are just plenty of cases, both in marriages to indigenous women, but also white girls, or should I say indigenous girls and white girls. Mm-hmm. Who are, who are children, 12 yeah. years old, 10 years old, um, 15 years old. And this was a practice that many people look down on, but it still happened. There, yeah. the, this desire to, you know, uh, populate the territory with white people, you know, meant that, yeah. and there was a high demand for, for women. Uh, and girls. The the ratio of male to female is like 10 to 1, and, and there's this racism rampant, and so it just becomes like, well, okay, I guess <laughs> just find this 12-year-old girl because she's female? Like, oh, it's so painful. Yeah, and it, and it happened, you know, it happened very commonly. Henry Yesler married a native girl who was 15. Wow. So, um, and that was, and then his, you know, and then he had a wife who came out, you know, and and that was also one of the factors that would happen, which was people who had married indigenous women often, the, the minute they their real white wife showed up from back east, or they found somebody new, they would, they would dump them. Wow. There's such a power differential in so many ways there, but you know, if it, a 15-year-old girl, I mean, to me that doesn't I mean, that's not consensual. That's rape. That's rape. I it's I, and and it 
I mean, something that strikes me about those particular anecdotes, there are probably more, but, you know, Yesler, I mean, there's a road named after him. These are common names from early Seattle so that they... Seattle history. Yeah. Those those are absolutely names that you hear about. They were important figures in the creation of Seattle. Exactly. Exactly. We'll be right back. Support for the Mossback podcast comes from the Crosscut Festival, happening online and in Seattle May 4th through the 7th. Join us in celebrating bold ideas for a changing world at our biggest event of the year, featuring fireside conversations, panels, live podcast recordings, workshops, and special events that explore forward thinking in politics, social justice, the environment, history, innovation, and more. Spend your week with the community of the curious at the Crosscut Festival this spring. More information at crosscut.com festival. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but um, in terms of the brief moment in time when there might have been, you know, some relationships between indigenous communities and white communities, I mean, it's always the indigenous women who are kind of marrying the white men, right? It's not the other way around. That's right. In the vast majority of of cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which to me just reminds us once again that this is about power. I mean, I think um, one part of the video that really stuck with me, I believe it kind of starts there, is when you kind of acknowledge that in early Seattle, so I'm assuming, you know, right after Seattle was called Seattle in the 1850s or something, it seems like there was one role for Native women, and that was to work in places like the Ilahi. It it just seemed like that was part of Pioneer Seattle. It was like, oh, yeah, right. So that we have these brothels, and, and these are the women who work there. And that, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, Seattle's first businesses are, you know, a, a store, a trading post. Henry Yesler started the first sawmill, mm-hmm. employing Native workers. The city moved very early to prevent um, Native people from living within the city. When, hmm. when they created. So this is pre-Mercer Girls. But uh, one of the major attractions of the village on Elliott Bay, the white village on Elliott Bay, was um, bordellos. Hmm. You know, they built houses and recruited prostitutes. Well, there weren't white women to recruit. Mm-hmm. So they were filled with indigenous women, many of them from out of the area. They would recruit them from of the northern tribes, and they were sex workers. And this was, you know, uh, commemorated in song. There's yeah. oh. there's a song that we talk about in the in the thing where you know it's these miners or or whatever up in up in British Columbia are all excited about you know getting a, their days off and going to Seattle and enjoying the company of native women all night. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it's true that over the course of Seattle, from the time of the Mercer Girls, but even earlier, 1850s, all the way up to World War II, that vice, 
as we call it now, mm-hmm. and that was prostitution, gambling, saloons, interracial mixing, whatever. Those forbidden things were one of the attractions of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the business community up until, uh, you know, into the early 20th century, not only participated in that business, but encouraged it and defended it mm. legally. You know, they worked very hard to make sure that prostitution uh, that looked the other way. It was uh, prostitution became a major tax resource and a and and a system of payoff mm. to politicians, to the police and others. So there was a financial interest there in keeping it going. Even while Seattle is growing in ways where more women are here and it's becoming more middle class, it's sort of like, well, it's a big industry. We don't want to scare it out of town. And everybody's you know palms are being greased mm-hmm. to kind of say, oh, yes, well, prostitution's terrible. Mm-hmm. But you know, your bank account is is full of cash that, that came from looking the other way and making sure they actually didn't get closed down. Huh. Yeah. So that was a big part of the, the sort of reputation of early Seattle and then just kind of s- sounds like it got pretty entrenched into the even the the govern governance. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, the gold rush probably really cemented it for a while, you know, because there were all these people coming from out of town, dropping tons of money in Seattle, going off to the gold fields and coming back, dropping another ton of money in Seattle. Mm. And these attractions were were primary, mm-hmm. you know, mining the miners, as they used to call it. I mean, that's the context. That's the context. So you have, yeah, just so much going on there. Patriarchy, racism, exploitation. I mean, something that, that is upsetting to me, of course, is are these, you know, the reason that they... We're bringing these women out because they're white and therefore they're marriageable, quote unquote, and then it would be legitimate somehow. But, oh, you know, heaven forbid these women are being trafficked out here because, you know, these are respectable women, right? They would never work in the brothels like, oh, what a horrible thing to sort of traffic women into these brothels. But it's like it seems like to me that narrative kind of ignores the native women who were I imagine many of them, most of them, trafficked into these brothels. It just seems to say these women who are not white, it's okay for them to work in the brothels, but it's definitely not okay for the white women to work. I don't know. That's something that really bothers yeah, me. Yeah, it's it's a contemporary story in that the, the 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 wounds and legacy of that dynamic continue to this day with missing indigenous women. Mm-hmm, What's mm-hmm. happening to them? Who is exploiting them? Yeah, and uh, a f- kind of a footnote was just recently there was a, a protest that happens on an annual basis and has been going on up in Vancouver for I don't know over twenty years, maybe thirty years even, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a, a march <clears throat> in support of Indigenous women who are missing and exploited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they recently toppled a statue in Gastown, which is kind of Vancouver's Pioneer Square, the historic Gastown, uh-huh. of a guy named John Gassy Jack Dayton, huh. who's who's actually the namesake of Gastown. I see. It was named after him. He was okay. a saloon owner. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the reason they toppled the statue is he he married two First Nations women, one of whom was a child, 12 years old, and her name was uh, Quahalia, 
She's from the First Nations of the the Squamish, Mm -hmm. not Suquamish, but the Squamish people. And, you know, the statue was put up in the 1970s as like, oh, here's this old character from, you know, he ran a saloon. They called him Gassy because he talked too much. And but Gassy Jack was vandalized. And finally, the statue, they've been splashing red paint on it for a long time. But this is exactly what happened here in Seattle in terms of, you yeah. know, marrying indigenous children mm-hmm. and women. And uh, that part of the story just getting written out. What's he known for? Oh, he was a chatty saloon keeper. And and let's put a statue up and promote the bars in Gastown. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's what we do with this stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a contemporary story in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. But this is, is one that just just because it's recently been in the news, it's like indigenous people haven't forgotten right. this legacy. Exactly. It's exactly. the rest of us that have blotted it out or papered it over or just never been told. I mean— quote unquote, married a 12 year old girl. I mean, that's a crime. That's a crime, you know, and that. And and you know what? It was a crime then. And it was a crime then. Yeah. I mean, that's (laughs) something to remember is the age of consent was not 12. Right. The age of consent was not 13. It was not 14, you know. And but these things were unenforceable. Mm. You know, uh, these communities, I mean, unenforceable in the sense that people look the other way, unenforceable in the sense that they happened often out of public view. Mm. People might even have been stigmatized, but a lot of it was just sort of mainstreamed. I mean, I think I think white men were kind of looked down upon for doing it. But I think I think it was more of 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 a kind of social ostracism, mostly of the victim. Mm hmm. Yeah. It, you know, mostly the victim. I, I just think one of the interesting things is that the story of the so-called Mercer Girls is presented as a kind of feel-good, humorous story. Yeah, yeah. And you can pick it apart with all this dark stuff, but you can also pick it apart in terms of did it did it really have an impact? It was only a handful of women. It mm-hmm. was only, you know, in terms of who came out and got married, it couldn't have been more than 30. The idea that this was some kind of turning point in the, in the pioneer phase doesn't really hold up. So it really becomes mm-hmm. a kind of, of story that's meant to in a sense, titillate at one level, but then also immediately serve this greater narrative of, of how the West was won. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Cover art by Greg Cohen. And many thanks to engineer Resty Bacall for building out an amazing COVID-friendly audio studio. If you'd like to check out more videos from the five seasons of Mossbacks Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. 
And if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to KCTS9's on-demand programming and a subscription to the Mossback Den newsletter, where Knut shares even more Pacific Northwest history. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard, and that's it for this season. Stay tuned for the next one. And thanks so much for listening.